at a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions. We need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a mindful moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. It was quite difficult because it just kind of felt like it it was almost like touching on something that I no longer had access to. And then just to make things more difficult, I added a puppy to the mix. (laughs) (laughs) Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 348. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, we have something fresh and fun up our sleeves over in our Patreon community. We are hosting Trivia Night, and you're invited to join us. We'll share more details in the coming weeks, but right now, mark your calendar for October 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern. If you're not yet a member, join our Patreon community to access this live event along with our other goodies like bonus episodes, book lists, and peeks behind the scenes of What Should I Read Next headquarters. Find out more at patreon.com slash what should I read next. Readers, today's guest is just starting to emerge from a multi-year book slump. And they're trying to reestablish trust in their reading choices and get back to their love of reading. Ames Rushton is a senior lecturer in the United Kingdom, where they focus on North American fiction and literature. This is fun for Ames because they adore literary fiction and can't get enough book talk, whether professionally or in their personal life. But back in 2020, when so much changed for all of us, Ames saw their reading life careen straight off a cliff, and it hasn't recovered yet. While Ames has applied a few tactics that have helped a lot, as you'll hear, they're still finding it easy to get derailed or feel listless about their reading selections. Ames wants to recover more of the joy and satisfaction they once enjoyed. Today, I hope to help Ames diagnose what they need as a reader right now and give them the boost they need to feel reconnected to their reading life. Let's get to it. Ames, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I have to say that I knew that we were going to have a good conversation when you told us in print that we pronounce your name like the character from Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. I thought that was telling. <laughs> it's true. And it's because for years, my my nickname, Ames, my birth name is Amy, uh, which I'm very attached to, but as a as a non-binary person, I, you know, I, enjoy, I enjoy Ames as a name. And I could never understand why my American friends would, when they were writing to me would would type in A-M-E-S. It took me years (laughs) to work out. And it wasn't until Marilyn Robinson kind of had her Obama moment that I was like, oh, it's the characters from Gilead are all called Ames. I was like, it makes so much sense. Well, working as a, uh, oh, I almost said professor, American me just about said professor. Um, It is. I'm basically a professor, senior lecturer. Different terminology. Oh, (laughs) yes. Thank you. Thank you for working that in. Um, I imagine (laughs) that you can say like John Ames and Gilead and have people actually know what you're talking about the majority of the time, or am I dreaming? 
in a utopia, yes, but unfortunately, <laughs> sadly, sadly not. It's because uh, I offer one of my um, joys is introducing students to American literature, but it's quite surprising actually how kind of little references students have sometimes. It's um, some classics or some very contemporary literature, but I think uh, it's quite terrifying. Anything kind of older than five years sort of gets relegated to uh, students regarding it as classic, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting ready to get apologetic about perhaps having a lot of American authors in our conversation today, but you do specialize in fiction from North America. Tell me a little more about what you what you lecture on. Um, so I'm a senior lecturer, which is basically an assistant professor equivalent at um, a university in the West Midlands of England. I mainly uh, teach and research contemporary North American fiction. I like to say North American because I've I obviously include Canadian and also Indigenous writers as well from those areas, but also specifically anti-colonial writing. So it's kind of uh, quite different. I think people expect an English professor to sort of probably be all about kind of the UK and British writing, but my my own interest and expertise is outside of the British Isles. Since you told our team in your submission, and listeners, I'm referring to our potential guest intake form at what should I read next podcast.com slash guest. You mentioned your favorite Jane Austen there. Would you tell our listeners? Oh, I'm so delighted you said this. <laughs> I, I really want to... Yeah. Well, um, yes. It, it's persuasion is my favorite Jane Austen. I, I do love the classics in particular, like classic novels, particularly like Victorian literature. So I think I didn't actually start reading Jane Austen until I started teaching, which sounds terrible, but it was, I've been teaching for nearly 15 years in the, in UK higher education. But yeah, it was a, a fantastic module that I got to teach early on in my career where we went from Cervantes' Don Quixote all the way through to Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children. And Persuasion was kind of nicely tucked in in the middle there. And I love that novel so much so that I can't quite bring myself to watch the watch the new film, even though I actually really <laughs> like Dakota Johnson. But I, I just was like, no. <laughs> I did enjoy reading a piece by, I think it was Devaney Lozer, the American academic who specializes in Jane Austen literature, who said, actually, this adaptation is taking a lot of flack. But she said, actually, Dakota Johnson wasn't wrong when she talked about being exes with her captain. There are usages predating Jane Austen, and I had no idea. I still only watched 20 minutes of that adaptation, and I'm okay with that. But, well, you know, I was never into the classics as a kid and, you know, as a teenager at all. I kind of actively avoided it. And it wasn't until I kind of had to take a pre 20th century option during my undergraduate degree. So I picked mm-hmm. Victorian literature or the Victorian novel and it just blew me away. And I think because actually it was much more contemporary in terms of language and, you know, being able to, you know, race through something like great. I had read Dickens, actually, that, that was something I'd read, but Great Expectations and Wuthering Heights, Test of the D'Urbervilles. That was when I kind of realised that I was missing <laughs> missing something really like important, not because these these books were important and they should be read but actually they were really entertaining for their their own sake you said believe it or not i haven't read austin but of course i believe it because none of us have read everything and yet we all know the feeling of wishing we had read certain books because we want the readerly experience 
So I'm glad, I'm glad you've gotten to catch up on some of those books you've been wanting to read. Now, Ames, I loved the story that brought you to what should I read next, but I'm sorry to say that it started with an enormous book slump. And I'd love for you to tell me a little bit about that. So this isn't, I know is not an unusual or unique experience and I apologise to everybody because it's we're always <laughs> we'll always bring up the pandemic. But I think, in fact, I think listening to the podcast has really helped me understand how much of an impact it has had on so many people's reading lives. And I wasn't the exception. Twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty one was just one giant book slump for me. And I'm a bit of a stats nerd, and it's really interesting when I look through particularly Goodreads and. I'm now on Storygraph. Um, we love you stats nerds because you have all the numbers <laughs> that many of us just have these vague feelings about. I mean, I yeah. journal. I can see when I'm reading and when I'm not, but I don't make pie charts. I cannot make a pie chart, but I love a bit of software that can, that can do it for me. My entire life is kind of books and, and reading you know, because of the, the job that I, you know, the job that I have, but also reading for, you know, reading for pleasure is a huge part of my you know, identity as well. And no matter how kind of busy and I was commuting a lot and how much, you know, I'm trying to have to read, like whether it's emails or student work or articles or, you know, like the books for teaching, this, this kind of thing. I still managed to keep up quite a lot with my own reading and 2020 basically hit with the pandemic and it just my reading life went off a cliff. I think what was interesting is I thought it was just 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 burnout, but I, but it was it was a combination of you know having to work from home suddenly and, and that being a huge adjustment and also the, the you know the stress that you know we all felt um, you know to different different degrees. But it wasn't until actually very recently I remembered sort of very viscerally kind of not being able to read anything that reminded me of what life was like before because I'm actually quite a, I'm quite an optimistic person but I'm also quite very much a realist and I had no idea about how long this was all going to last and or you know if we'd ever get to anything like normal life again and and actually even though you'd think it'd be a good opportunity to sit at home and read I actually just found like I couldn't but it mm. it just the, the idea of kind of thinking about life before the pandemic and even something like you know like a, a rom-com was quite difficult because it just kind of felt like it it was almost like touching on something that I no longer had access to and then just to make things more difficult I added a puppy to the mix <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't quite understand like how kind of incompatible having a puppy <laughs> would be to do any reading so I actually did get a, quite a lot of reading done in 2021 but it was all dog books <laughs> The right book is there for you when you need it. And you certainly needed those. So then tell me about 2022. I know that you're still finding yourself challenged when it comes to readerly stamina, but it sounds like things are going much better. Yeah, much better. 2022 significantly improved, but I think there's, you're right, it's, it's still that stamina. I think reading stamina is a really good way of putting it. And also, I, I think I have that kind of fear that it's going to go away again really quickly because I think, you know, two years is a, a long time to have a significant slump. And we all have it. I mean, that's, that's part of, of our reading lives is 
that you know sometimes we're sort of on a, on a really good roll and sometimes there'll even be years where we're only kind of reading things that might be kind of a three star you know four star but you know we're still kind of in that rhythm and, and enjoying enjoying the experience as well but yeah it's I think there's I was just kind of getting to a point where I was starting to read kind of in, in a like this is January 2022 like getting up and you know reading a chapter or something in the morning and that was going really well but then I'd find that the minute I finished a book I'd really struggle to like find what I wanted to read next <laughs> there you go you know the, cl- the clues in the podcast title and I couldn't figure out why why you know I had all these digital Kindle books I'm very lucky that I've got you know a great work library that you know gets material in for me as well and yeah I was still really struggling to find anything that you know sort of really kind of sparked joy <laughs> to, to you know um uh, borrow from Marie Kondo. It wasn't until I actually started listening to the podcast earlier this year, and I think listening to people having similar struggles sort of really helped me to kind of sit and go through and look at what my most memorable reading experiences had been the last few years, and realizing that actually a lot of the books that I was I had I've been reading for I guess since like 2016 it doesn't really kind of fall into that category that kept coming up, and it was literary fiction, and having to really think about well, well why like why am I not reading something or a genre a very loose genre albeit that, that gives me so much joy and that's been quite challenging sort of thinking about well you know okay what, what's been going on actually it's because I read so much for work that I've made this kind of false distinction between reading for pleasure and reading for work so when I read contemporary literary fiction there can often be an impulse of being oh this would be great to teach like, this would be such a great lecture Oh, I could pair it with this other this other novel that I've read, and I could like write a, a journal article on it. There's nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with doing that. But I think I've accidentally sucked some of the joy out of a genre that I think has been really I think has been really important to me, and I kind of want to have that sort of take center stage again in my reading life, not just my professional life. What made you think to do that, to sit down and write down the most memorable reading experiences from the last few years? I wanted to try and see what kind of common themes came up. I often think of myself as quite a an eclectic reader and you know, I like to read widely. And I, I wonder whether I had a little bit of trepidation that actually, you know, that, no, I didn't actually read specific themes and, and, and this kind of thing. But, oh, it actually was really sparked by reading this year's Summer Reading Guide. I did the thing of printing it off and sitting with highlighters. <laughs> and the enthusiasm rating really, really helped actually for this. And what really surprised me was that the friends and family section was like overwhelmingly, like I think I did four or five every title in that section. And that really hit me because I was like, oh, actually, I haven't read a lot of these kinds of novels or like memoirs, you know, for actually for quite a long time. And that's when I decided to kind of sit down and be like, oh, okay, what, if I look through Goodreads, what are them, what are the books from sort of 2015 onwards that really like jump out to me? And then also kind of realising that I could possibly reread some of those as well, because I don't always want to read, I'm not someone who's necessarily interested in the the shiny new buzzy book. I'm actually quite sceptical of that for reasons that we talk about when we get to the book I didn't Ooh. like. <laughs> so often I'm not really attracted by like the, the next new shiny thing. But there was something really interesting about there's all these, you know, these these books that kind of fit these themes that I'd just kind of been ignoring because, you know, I, I kind of didn't want anything that seemed too challenging. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I've read some fantastic, you know, uh, you know, romantic comedies and, you know, YA and, you know, crime and thrillers and you know, horror. 
haunted location stories, but they weren't scratching an itch. And that really came up in this this list of, of memorable reading experiences. Do you remember an example of what one of your memorable reading experience entries might have been? Yeah, the one title that really stood out was Saints for All Occasions by J. Courtney Sullivan. And I had this moment of thinking, I actually really enjoyed that book. And it wasn't necessarily the fact that it was something that, you know, I wanted to work on or teach particularly, but it just hit on so many of the themes that through reading the Summer Reading Guide, particularly memoirs and, and novels, it was quite a long book. Um, there was like, you know, a few really memorable characters. It was quite sad and kind of reflective. It was about family and kind of complicated family dynamics. And, it, I, and I also realised that actually I hadn't read anything else by that author. I, like I, I am, <laughs> I guess like a bit of a promiscuous reader in the sense that it's very rare that I will read an entire author's work and so I I was thinking well which other writers have I enjoyed that I've read that I actually haven't gone and followed up and read their other other work as as well so like Jamie Attenberg is a good example of that as well where I've actually read a couple of Attenberg's novels but I've actually got a a couple of others that I already had like on my Kindle library Uh, I think there was one last year that actually a story graph recommended actually would would, would suit me and I think it, it was that process of thinking that it's okay to lean into themes and writers that I enjoy. I don't always have to read as widely <laughs> as, um, as, I, as I want to, to. Just because like something seems quite similar in theme doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it's not going to give me pleasure or it's going to, or it's not going to challenge me. Like it's, it's okay to, to want to go for those kinds of themes. And I wonder if also knowing that you can read a book that could stand up to being taught in a classroom, like deep themes you could dive into, lots to discuss, interesting motifs, things you could write essays about. It's fine to sit in your armchair and read that and enjoy it and close it and not take a single note. And that would be okay too. Yeah, 100%. And and they're the sort of novels that I actually really enjoy recommending to people as well. (laughs) That's something that I get a lot of pleasure out of, you know, is is matching the person to the book. That's also one of the reasons why I really enjoyed the podcast as well because I do read widely, but I think quite typically of me, I'm not always very good at my own advice. So I think that if I, if I was recommending books to myself, <laughs> probably uh-huh. I'm not taking on that advice in, in some ways. Like it, it's a peculiar one, but uh, one that I think is quite typical of me. It's not just you though. It's so much easier to have perspective when we're talking about someone else's reading life, which is why it's so great to have a book friend who knows you, but is not inside your head importantly, because you just have too much information. You have too many data points and it makes it tricky. We have so much more objectivity and usefulness when we're talking about somebody else's taste. Ames, I'm really interested in digging in and hearing more about how these big ideas play out in your reading life. I think it's time to talk about your books. Are you ready to talk about your books? I am always. (laughs) (laughs) I like that answer. Ames, You know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately. And we will try to put our finger on why they really work for you, something that you've been struggling to do, and also what that means you may enjoy reading next. Now, how did you choose these favorites you're talking about with us today? I decided to think about that sort of almost like that false distinction that I I think I've made between reading for fun and reading for work, for like for research and for teaching, and actually pick texts that I could easily teach or could easily, you know, write about. And in one case, I have done a little bit, but it's a bit more fuzzy as I'll, I'll explain. But actually that I, you know, that I that I haven't, but also that I have reread. 
rereading is something that I love doing as a kid and as a teenager I would often just kind of read the same text like I'm saying books over and over again and rereading is something that I have to do a lot for work and particularly if I'm writing like an academic article or you know presenting a conference paper on a text like I need to know it you know really well the same goes to some extent teaching text as well but I I kind of really miss rereading for fun so I was having a look through you know what are the what are the novels that in the sort of the last guess I yeah five years five six years that I've reread just a pleasure (laughs) not not because I had to and that's what I went for well I can't wait to hear what you chose tell me about the first book you love so the first book I love is a bit of a cheat to this, <laughs> to this rule, <laughs> rule that I gave myself, but I had to had to include it. It's truly my favourite book and it's one that really changed my life. And that is Nervous Conditions by Zizi Dangaremba. Tell me more. Dangaremba is a Zimbabwean filmmaker and also fiction writer. And Nervous Conditions has ended up being the first in a very drawn out trilogy. It's taken Zizi over 30 years to write the three novels. Nervous Conditions for uh, for quite a while was very well known in the field that I teach, uh, post-colonial and anti-colonial literature. And it's a really extraordinary novel. Nervous Conditions has, I think, my favourite ever opening line to any novel, which is, I was not sorry when my brother died. And it goes on from there. The voice, who is not sorry that their brother died, is Tambu, is a teenage girl who lives in British-occupied Rhodesia, which was the name that British gave to Zimbabwe before it declared independence and became Zimbabwe. So Tambu lives in Rhodesia with her family. She's not really poor, but she's certainly not rich either. And her family can only afford to send one of their children to school, and it is inevitably the son. And this is the brother uh, that she refers to in the in the opening line. Nervous Conditions is just this extraordinary account of a young girl growing up in a society that doesn't value her because she is black and female, essentially. And she so desperately craves education. Various things occur to her and she ends up going to school. She ends up going to missionary school and kind of having access to kind of all this education that she's craved for so long. But the circumstances that means that she is becoming a very different person to the rest of her family. She also encounters her cousins who have partly grown up in Britain and have returned with her uncle and auntie. And it's really about kind of the culture clash and the things that Tambu wants as opposed to what her cousin Naisha wants and how she perceives the world. And what's really fascinating about Nervous Conditions is that even though it feels as though it should be a teenage girl's coming of age narrative, the narrative voice is very much the older Tambu. So this is very kind of reflective and wry and quite dry tone throughout. It really is just about this young girl's understanding about how unfair the world is. It's not really 
showy. It doesn't make a big song and dance about the politics that are going on in terms of you know British colonialism at the time and you know what's going on. And I think like so many, particularly contemporary African novels that are written kind of outside the continent can sometimes do this where it feels a bit like they're spelling out um, you know, the big themes or like you know, they have to kind of walk the reader through the history, you know, that is going on in the background. Nervous conditions like never does that. It sort of makes no concessions to the reader. Like you just have to go with it, and you just kind of have to be pulled along by just this narrator who isn't necessarily the easiest to like or to empathise with. Like she's she's not like super charismatic. She's you know she's not someone who's particularly you know outspoken. But it's just the way that Dangaremba brings you into this world and this and this psyche. And I have taught it, you know, a little bit. It's really fascinating because, again, I've never known a student who disliked it. <laughs> like everybody's mm-hmm. always really drawn to it. You know, it's it's not an easy <laughs> novel to just like pin down. I think that's what I love about it, and that's why I wanted to include it because it was a novel that kind of really opened my eyes to what else is out there, kind of in the world. That's so interesting. I'm glad you included it. Ames, tell me about another book you love. Hey, so second book that I have picked is another novel. I don't just read novels, but <laughs> this kind of like they're, they're kind of my, my bread and butter, I suppose. Another novel that's in a trilogy, only this one is the second part of the trilogy, <laughs> and it's very well known. And that is Bring Up the Bodies by Hilary Mantel, which is the second in the Hawthorne trilogy. Mm-hmm. Tell us more. How did you end up choosing book two of the trilogy? I don't often read a lot of dead white men, <laughs> whether they're fictional or like otherwise these days. Second novel is notably the shorter of the three in the trilogy, and it only focuses on the downfall of Anne Boleyn. So, I mean, I had to study the Tudors at least three times at school. You know, it's one of those things that you in, in the British education system, you end up being absolutely sick of by the time you kind of finish your formal education. So you know how many wives Henry VIII had. You kind of roughly know what happened to them. The, the tragedy of Anne Boleyn is very much like well-trodden ground in historical fiction. So there's something really extraordinary about Bring Up the Bodies. And I can't believe that it works when I've read it at least another, probably, I've probably read it about three times, I think now is that I can't believe how tense it makes me <laughs> because <laughs> I know what's going to happen. You know, I've known the story of Anne Boleyn since I was at least you know, eight years old. I was on the edge of my seat, even when I reread it. To do that once, you know, we've all had it and we read like a really good thriller and you're like, oh, I wish I could read that again. And, you know, but you kind of know what the, the twist is going to be or how it ends. And you kind of feel like, I always kind of feel like that about Bring Up the Bodies, that it's, you know, it's never going to feel this. It's never going to feel the same, but it does. It's just something really kind of propulsive, and the way that she makes something that is so well known that you really, again, you really care for the characters, like you really care, or you feel really invested in Cromwell having to do this terrible thing, which is to find a reason to accuse a woman and send her to her death, whilst at the same time he's using it as an opportunity to exact revenge on four people who condemned his mentor, Cardinal Wolsey, which is detailed in the in Wolfhall in the first book. Yeah, and just the way it kind of brings you on this kind of, like, just this kind of extraordinary ride. It's just such a fantastic novel. And I think the other two are great as well. Like, I think Mirror in the Light is probably less successful. I think for me is less successful than the previous two. But there's something really pithy about Bring Up the Bodies. When I've been listening to the audiobook, and, you know, that it's, 
it's not just kind of like the tension and, and the the way that the plot builds, but also the dialogue. Like it's funny. And then there's so many characters that, and this, it's all ridiculous because they're all kind of based on historical figures. So the names aren't changed. So there's way too many Thomases and way too many Henrys. But it's, she creates these very distinct characters that are so memorable like i even remember characters like chapuis who's the the french ambassador which is just just like a minor character but that the voices and the ways in which you recognize them she makes something new out of it and it's just like a really really good read (laughs) now ames i always feel like i'm asking you the only ever book you ever loved but tell us about your final favorite you brought today My final favourite is kind of representative of a very particular genre of book that I really, I really love. The reasons that I I can't quite fathom, kind of true crime memoir, but from the survivor or the victim's kind of family's perspective, but not kind of in a a soapy way, actually in a very sort of beautiful and reflective way style of writing and that book is the red parts autobiography of a trial by maggie nelson so people may have heard more of maggie nelson for the argonauts which again is you know it is also like an extraordinary kind of literary memoir but i picked the red parts because again it's another text or another book that i've read again at least three times and it's also one that i kind of dip in and out of as well and the circumstances of the red parts and the trial that it's referring to is almost like kind of stranger than stranger than fiction. Like if it wasn't true, you you almost wouldn't you know believe it happened. Maggie Nelson had an aunt who was brutally murdered at university at college. Um, in really sad circumstances um, and kind of horrific circumstances. A, a long time before. Maggie Nelson was even born. Her aunt was called Jane. Maggie Nelson kind of grew up with knowing about Jane and kind of knowing what kind of knowing what happened to her, but also kind of her casting quite a long shadow in terms of her mum being quite worried about um, her and her sister like growing growing up and their safety and then this kind of thing. And Maggie Nelson is kind of more well known now, I think, for being a sort of memoirist and um, sort of a, an academic or kind of critical writer. But she started her publication career as a poet and she wrote um, a collection of poetry called Jane, a Murder, um, which was kind of her response to you know, growing up under the shadow of having like a, a family member who she never knew. And as this collection of poems about her aunt was about to be published, she received a phone call notifying her that the case for her aunt's suspected killer was about to be opened and there was about a trial date was set. The entire can of worms explode and the impact that it has on her mother, you know, and her sister and also herself as well. And having to really, she just thought she'd, you know, she'd published this series of poems thinking that that's kind of like her kind of personal reckoning. But actually, it's only the start of it. And The Red Parts is her kind of really beautifully and quite brutally detailing what that experience of the trial was like, but also kind of using it as a way of reflecting on her relationship with her parents and also kind of her relationship to kind of her ideas around safety and thinking about kind of women's position in the world and, and how they move through it. She's really wrestling with, does she have the right to write about Jane, you know, this this person who had such a massive impact on her life, but she never knew. And she's already kind of thinking about this at the time. And then the trial brings this all up as well, like, you know, what, what it does to you know, her 
like for her family, but also for the people who who knew Jane and for the person who's accused of Jane's murder as well. And it sounds incredibly bleak, and there are parts that are quite difficult, and some of it is not related necessarily to Jane's murder. And one of the things that I love about the red parts and memoirs and accounts of kind of how sort of crimes ricocheting kind of resonate like throughout like you know somebody's life it never goes into detail about you know what happens or it's not graphic but it it doesn't shy away from sort of the grief and the pain and there's something you know incredibly moving and I think quite relatable to seeing somebody grapple with quite a difficult family history that's had a huge impact on them yet they don't necessarily have like a direct connection to it's just kind of fantastic and I think it really shows like how I think true crime can be a bit of a more nuanced genre than I think sometimes it's given credit for as well. That sounds so interesting. I haven't read any Maggie Nelson yet, though she's been lingering on my TBR for quite a while. Ames, tell me about a book that was not right for you. My falling out of love a bit with lit- contemporary literary fiction kind of starts a little bit with this book, which feels a bit unfair, but um, it was just the experience that I had. And it's The Girls by Emma Klein. It was actually quite a big, buzzy book. And I picked it up at the airport. I was, I was going on, on a holiday at the time and I'd heard a lot about it on podcasts that I'd been listening to. And it just massively disappointed me. And the reason why I ended up picking it was I think it had lots that I should have loved about it. But the mm-hmm. tone was very reflective and quite dry. It was a first-person narrator. You know, it was a you know an adult voice looking back on their kind of experiences of being a teenage girl and that the difficulties and they had and the angst. But it just didn't work for me. And I just remember I just remember being like kind of crushingly disappointed. I'm trying to think. I remember this coming out. I remember all the buzz. It's not a gentle book. No. It's like a bloodthirsty kind of book. Mm. Well, I'm speaking as a sensitive reader who probably wouldn't have dove in if she had fully understood what was going to unfold on the pages. But I feel like dark doesn't quite cover it, not because it's not a strong enough adjective, but because it doesn't quite capture the nature of the tone. It just felt a little bit unearned. Trauma is a really popular theme. And I know this from (laughs) many students who want to write on it. But it's also one that I think is hard to do well and easy to, to do quite poorly as well, if that makes sense. Oh, yes. And when you do do it well, often it's invisible to the reader just how how much you've accomplished because it goes down so easy. <laughs> okay. I wonder if so many of the books you love, especially these literary novels that feel like both work and like treats to you, really embody a quest to understand human nature. Why do we feel the way we feel? Why do we act the way we do, especially in relationship? What does it mean to be human? Does that resonate at all? It does, actually. It really makes sense. Maybe there's something about when it becomes connected to kind of literary fiction and it sort of make perhaps it either is intending, it's interpreted as trying to kind of get at some bigger questions, whereas the titillating aspect of true crime it's just kind of there for sort of entertaining and shock purposes. And that's okay, but not for me. <laughs> yeah, I really noticed your use of the word grappling. Why do we do what we do? I think you like books that ask that why question. And with mm. the girls, the teenage protagonist is like, okay, the Manson sounds like a fun time. I'm kind of bored. Let's do it. Like it's different than wrestling with the essential questions of human nature. 
which I think is what you're into. I think that's what you love in so much of literature. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I was thinking about a writer that I really love, which might seem very sort of different to the, the novels that I pick, but somebody like Anne Tyler, like I love Anne Tyler. And I think mm-hmm. family novels, like, I know, you know, family sagas play into this because there's a lot of grappling with why, you know, why do people end up being the way that they are? Why do people, you know, behave in certain ways around their family or the people that they've grown up with than they do with, like, say, their friends or, or their colleagues? Yeah, that idea about why, why are we, why are we the way that we are? (laughs) And you're talking about Ann Tyler. I think also if we sidestep to the how, how could someone endure that? How could someone treat someone like that way? How could someone survive that kind of situation? How can you draw meaning from such an experience? How can you write 22 novels all about families in their infinite complexity? Like I, I think that's a, I think you want more than the plot the girls is plot, 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 plot. But these books that you love, I think they're more about the how and the why, the mental viewpoint. And I think you're looking to draw implications for you and sometimes your students as well. Even if you're not talking to your students about these books, I think you like books where you see like, oh, these are worth talking about. These are things worth knowing. These are things worth examining. Absolutely. And I think that suddenly makes, you know, you were, we were talking about having you know, a book friend. And I guess I haven't really thought about this before, but I think I'm probably seeing my students as my book friends. Oh, I love that. That's lovely. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It's like, what can I give you? Because I think that that's what it felt for me. I mean, I think it's no coincidence that Nervous Conditions was introduced to me through Electra. Yeah, I hadn't really, I've never really thought about that before. I kind of feel like, oh, I don't really have a reading community in, in that sense, but I do. <laughs> You're always talking books with people. That's exactly it. (laughs) All right. We'll sleep on that and see how that feels later. See, and you know, you can take a look at your bookshelves and think more about what you love and what you don't. And we can see if that theory holds water. Let's see what else we can parse out here. Ames, what have you been reading lately? I recently got back into audiobooks, a big breakthrough being that what I like to listen to on audio isn't necessarily what I enjoy reading on the page one of my favorite reads this year is actually an audiobook and i think it probably works best on audiobook and that is the final revival of opal and nev by dawny walton it's about a fictional like pop musicians it takes a form of all history so therefore it uses multiple narrators as huge casts of voice actors i loved it so much and i think it really hits on the things that i love about music which is the politics of it, the way it sort of captures a moment in time. Like the way Walton writes about particularly Opal, I almost like sort of envisioned her as a more sort of punk rock version of Nina Simone. If you can imagine such a thing, that just tells (laughs) you kind of uh, what a strong character she is. And about kind of how she collaborates with, again, a fictional white British musician called Nev. They have a very short collaboration together a music journalist decides to kind of find out what actually happened and it and so basically the, the audiobook takes the form of all these these interviews that and that have been put together as part of this oral history but i had to kind of remember that it, it wasn't true <laughs> it's like they felt re- the history their positions as fictional characters felt so strong and mm-hmm. so convincing I was I almost like felt really sad at the end of thinking oh like I actually wanted to listen to like I actually wanted to listen to you know, these albums or you know hear more about these people but the cast is just 
fantastic and you know it, there's so many people in it but uh, Barney Turpin who I think I know is one of your favorite mm-hmm. narrators is really important you know I love you know single narrator like audiobooks as well like there's quite been quite a few I've enjoyed like particularly this year but there's something great about like a really fantastic cast and it just works so well and yeah I really recommend it it's it's, it's such a fantastic audiobook okay Ames what do you want to be different in your reading life Sounds really strange for someone to say this, like when reading and talking about books is it's like kind of my day job. But I just kind of want to get the confidence again that I'm not constantly sort of struggling to find a book that I want to read. I pick something up. I'm going to feel satisfied by the end of it, you know. And and then if I don't feel satisfied, then it's okay that something else <laughs> that there'll be something else lined up that I can go back to. I, I think I've been too much of a mood reader, if that makes sense. And I think sometimes I think I, I might need to be a bit, a bit more strategic about the way I read for my own pleasure, not just kind of because I think I should read widely. I'm glad you said that. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing. I promise. <laughs> okay. Let's recap the books you loved nervous conditions by ZZ Dungaremba bring up the bodies by Hilary Mantel and the red parts autobiography of a trial by Maggie Nelson not for you the girls by Emma Klein and recently you've been reading the final revival of Opal and Nev by Donnie Walton and really i think we need to go back to pandemic talk by ju- for just a moment and say that it's important that we not forget that you had a giant book slump those are your words in 2020 in 2021 and you are in a very real sense relearning how to read for pleasure again and you're relearning how to trust yourself in your reading life and you may be expert in the world of books but that doesn't mean that you feel really confident when it comes to seeking out joyful reading experiences and that's really what you're looking for right now does that sound accurate to you it really does we talked about the literary fiction that felt too close well you thought it was too close to professional reading, but that it really brings you great joy in your reading life. And you'd really like to bring more of that back into your life. And we talked about how you love books that wrestle with big themes that you feel like have implications long after you put down to the book, like stuff that matters in your everyday life and the world to all of us. And even though those books seem teachable, you're not going to deny yourself that reading experience just because it would work well in the classroom. And then we talked about rereading and how you know that brings you joy and you'd like to find more time or make more time to reread those books. And Ames, you mentioned being a reader who reads widely. We were really alike in that way and that we both do read widely. I wonder, I wonder, this is unusual because most of the time we're helping people branch out, but I wonder if we don't want to float the possibility for you to hone in a little bit specifically on the things you love. Being mindful of the fact that no stage in your reading life is forever. Like this is uniquely where you are in late 2022. But I just want to suggest that the fact that you can read widely doesn't necessarily mean that you have to read widely. And that will look different ways for different people. But if you're focusing right now on just a couple of things that you know you find really satisfying, that make you feel confident as a reader and make you remember why you love to read, not just for work, which you do a ton of, but also for pleasure. I wonder if choosing just a couple of categories, and I might suggest that literary fiction that embodies the quest to understand why people do what they do and how they make the decisions that they do in their lives. 
and also rereading favorites from whatever genre. I wonder if that might be an interesting small experiment. You could set the time frame to narrowing down your choices to books that you know you're likely to love. Now, does that make you twitchy or does that feel enticing? It feels like a massive sense of relief, actually. <laughs> That's telling. That's telling. That's good yeah. to know. Yeah, it really does. I think I think that I really don't like snobbery like of, of any kind. And I think that in, in particular, and I think I was a bit of a book snob, particularly when I was, I was a, when I was a teenager and probably in my early 20s. And I've really enjoyed and will continue in the mid to long term future, enjoy reading widely again. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think I think you've hit on something that I think has been the back of my mind for quite a while, which is it's okay to identify your lane and stick in it. And like you said, it doesn't have to be forever. <laughs> I think you I think you just said it as well. Like I need to remember why I love reading. And even though I've gotten a lot of pleasure out of reading widely, that's not what I need in terms of, of getting a, a rhythm back into my life again, a, a reading rhythm. We talked a little bit ago about how you sat and wrote out your most memorable reading experiences of the last few years to see what you were missing. And I wonder how life-giving it could be. And also really practical to just sit down and think expansively about what you may want to reread. And I think it'd be really interesting to see what you come up with and also how that feels to contemplate all the books you could reread. And I imagine based on what you've said, like I'm just picturing you with your pen and your paper and a big smile on your face (laughs) as you're making a list. I love that idea actually. Yeah. Because I think like off the top of my head, the Saints for All Occasions, the J. Courtney Sullivan novel, I really enjoyed that and it was a great reading experience, but I don't necessarily think I want to read my gut. My gut feeling is that I don't necessarily feel like I need to reread that. Whereas Lauren Groff's Fates and Furies, which was a novel that I absolutely loved and I've been meaning to reread for a long time, but just never gotten around to it. Now is as good as time as any, but to like actually get and actually just to make a list of you know, what am I excited to reread as well, rather than like what I should. Be. Again, it's that should, isn't it, like with my work. Like, what do I want to reread because I can reread it, not because I have to reread it. Right. Discerning what it is that you want in your reading life, I think is going to be key to building your confidence again in finding books that you will love. Because you know you can read. It's in finding books that you find deeply satisfying. For pleasure, when you're reading for pleasure. But I'm not going to leave you without books to read next. (laughs) Okay, so I really think you may enjoy the new Barbara Kingsolver that's coming out in the US and in the UK in October. It's called Demon Copperhead. Do you know anything about this yet? I don't know. Okay, well, I'm not sure how you will feel as a British lecturer, but if you are an American assistant professor, you would want to teach this so badly as a specialist in North American (laughs) literature. This is a retelling of David Copperfield. Oh. When I found that out, I thought, really, Barbara? Like, you haven't written a book in years. Like, is this what we're going to do? And yes, yes, it is. And it is amazing. Readers, you absolutely do not need to read David Copperfield first. But if you do, you'll notice a bunch of inside jokes, like how when King Silver updates the names of characters, she does it in really creative ways that may make it go sometimes. Like Uriah Heap becomes U-Haul Piles, because this story <laughs> is set in American Appalachia in Lee County, Virginia, which is in the tiny southwest corner that is um, thinly inhabited, desperately poor. And the home to Damon Fields 
who is known by all as Demon Copperhead for his red hair and because everybody has at least one nickname and usually three or four in Lee County, Virginia. We meet him at age 11. Uh, First, I got myself born is how the book begins. It's in the first person like uh, David Copperfield. The voice in this is incredible. And the way that she is smart and clever and just like, oh, gets at your heart because Dickinson's David Copperfield was an impassioned work of social activism. And that is very much true for Demon Copperhead as well, as he grows up living in foster care and his mother is addicted to opioids. And then he becomes addicted to opioids at one part. And he talks about the ravages in Southwestern Virginia and how his people that he very much identifies with are oppressed by those who have power. And he becomes a artist along the way. Well, not along the way. He's always loved to draw, but you'll see that blossom. And it's 540 pages, which I know, I think it's 560, which is a big ask. I think you'll find it worth it on every page. And I would love to talk to you when you're done with this, how this reads to you, because I'm in Kentucky. I'm one state over. There's, there's a point in the story where the Kentucky boys and the Tennessee boys meet each other and find out they're telling the same jokes about each other. It's just that the Kentucky boys mock the Tennessee boys in one version and then you flip it for the other. But you are like literally an ocean removed from this whole story. So I'm wondering how your distance affects your reading of this book. I think it would be fascinating to break that down between an American and a Brit. That's really astute because thinking about nervous conditions, one of the things that I really love about nervous conditions is the fact that it's very specific and it doesn't necessarily make concessions. And I think this, like Demon Copperhead, is really exciting for me because if it's kind of that grounded in a very specific place, I love those novels that do that where you kind of, you have to work at it a bit as well. That sense of embodying a different time in a different place and a different, or experiencing the world through someone else's perspective. So that is super exciting. And I think that's why it leaves readers just feeling so winded at the end because it's so original and so effective. And I'm really, oh, I'm really curious to hear what you think. Listeners, there are so many hard things in this story. They are not graphic, but they are most definitely present. So please note that going in. Okay, that is Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. Next, have you read Elif Bachman? I've had him on my CBR for... It feels like years. They never seem to like crawl any further up, which is a shame, but yeah. (laughs) Tell me, tell me. (laughs) All right, let's see if we can put this on an elevator. So of course, The Idiot, which came out in 2017, was a Pulitzer contender. So that got a lot of publicity, lots of awareness surrounding that book. The new book called Either Or that came out earlier this year is the one that I really want you to read. So it's it's a sequel. It is a continuum of, of Celine's story that began in The Idiot. But I'm not a purist in this sense. Listeners, you can get upset with me about this in comments. But the one that I really want you to read, whether that's first or to get to, is Either or. Um, The Idiot is about an 18-year-old girl. She's starting her first year at Harvard. She discovers email. It's the fall of 1995 when the internet was not (laughs) the internet that it is now. So her email account changes her life and leads uh, to lots of questions she has about language. And I think that would be really interesting for you to wade your way through. And you're going to want to get your notebook and your pad and make all these notes for your students. And don't do that. Just if you want to reread it and think about that later, that's fine. But this is just for you. She has a, a crush on a classmate. 
The story is meandering. Those who don't enjoy character-driven fiction have used words like boring and pointless, but you won't find it that way. I think you will be charmed by her voice and her musings on the world, and especially her like comic, self-aware turns of language, because she is a very self-aware narrator. And she's not always the smartest. I mean, she's an 18-year-old incoming college student. She knows what she doesn't know. And she makes jokes about it. And I think that fact that she realizes that she still has a lot of maturation to do. And she's okay with that. And she's going to tell you all about it along the way. I think the way that she invites you into her interior philosophizing, I think you'll find that really winning. So that is The Idiot. But we we stay with Celine in her new book. Well, Bachman's new book, Either Or, picks up. Gosh, it feels like five years later, but I think it may be just one in the timeline of this world. But she has decided that if she has all these books assigned to her in school on her literature syllabus, assigned to her Mm -hmm. by her lecturer, she's thinking that no one wants her to learn these things unless they're supposed to have very practical real world applications. So by golly, she is going to do her best to put the things she's learning in the classroom into practice in her life. Oh, God. I can't imagine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to stop there then. So those are The Idiots, which is the first book in this, I'm going to call it a loose series. And then either or. I think you could jump in either way. Tell us in comments, listeners, what you think. But I think she could be a good fit for you, especially knowing the kind of books you enjoy, especially knowing that you've enjoyed Jennifer Egan. I think you might enjoy this association of life with a literature syllabus on top of all the other reasons I think this could be a good fit for you. No, I'm really pleased about that. Cause like I said, it, the idiot has been hovering around on, on my TBR for such a long time and I hadn't had the recommendation from quite the right person. I'm always like intrigued as well just jump into either or go, I might do that. <laughs> and finally, I know that you love nonfiction and memoir. We talked about Maggie Nelson's The Red Parts, but you did mention, and I think this was just to me privately, that Nonfiction appears far less in your to-be-read list in your end-of-year reading summaries than fiction, and you wouldn't mind bumping up the volume on that a little bit. So I'm torn between amazing nature writing, because I know you enjoy that, and a true memoir. I think I'm going to go the true memoir direction. Is that okay with you? That's fine by me. (laughs) I'm wondering about 10 Steps to Nanette, a memoir situation by Hannah Gamsby. Is this one that you're familiar with? It's really funny that you say that because I literally just bought it with a credit on the two for one sale on Audible. <laughs> okay. Knowing that you have a thousand books in, in your Kindle library, I'm going to go ahead and tell you about it because I know that's no guarantee. So many people first learned of Hannah Gadsby through her Netflix special, which is called Nanette. And if you haven't seen it or you don't know, this is an incredibly personal show in which she takes on homophobia homophobia, gendered violence, her own personal history, and more. What she does here is she takes us behind the scenes, not just of creating the show, which she does. And as a literature lecturer, I think you'll really enjoy that. It's not a book she's putting together. It's it's a Netflix special. But she talks about how to calibrate her delivery to have the maximum effect on the audience and how she knows people will react and how she tweaked her delivery based on past audiences' interactions. And I think you'll really enjoy hearing her talk about all those. So I didn't know anything about the special or her life when I listened to the book, and she's such a good narrator of her own story. So I'm glad to hear that you got it on Audible. 
I didn't know how much I didn't know, especially about her home country of Australia. And she grew up in Tasmania, and she talks a lot about Tasmanian culture during her childhood, just things I had no idea about, both the way she experienced the culture, but also she talks a lot about the laws of the land. Like in Tasmania, homosexuality was illegal until 1997, but she grew up as a queer person in that very place. And she talks about what that was like for her and why it was so hard and some of the specifics involved. And she talks about making the decision to tell the truth about her life and the world around her, no matter what it costs her. And something else that's so interesting is she's not neurotypical. So she shares about being diagnosed with autism and ADHD, how those diagnoses didn't come till she was an adult, how they affect her comedy and how her relationship to comedy has evolved over the years. And some of her insights about family complexities and um, her interactions with others, some of her observations about her experience in the world and what she sees about life and her family are so striking. They remind me exactly of the things I love about those complicated family stories that I know we both enjoy so much. And so while this is a book about one person's life and it is nonfiction, I think it will connect so seamlessly to so many of the fictional stories you love. You picked this up because it sounded good to you. How does that sound? And is it what you expected? Actually, it isn't what I expected, and I'm, but I'm really pleased because I'm really glad you recommended it because that's the only thing I was thinking about is, well, these kind of stories that I like, would they translate to my enjoyment on audiobook? And actually, I think this is a really great kind of push for me. I've got it on my to-be-listened-to like list. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how long it would have taken me to get getting around to it. I saw Nanette, I think, fairly early when it when it landed on, on Netflix as well. And it is like an amazing, just an amazing like, piece of art. But it's been quite a while since then. So I'm not sure kind of how long it would have taken me to pick it up. So I really enjoy it as a listening experience. It's kind of exciting because it kind of means that it gives me more options of, you know, how and when to access these kind of more knotty kind of complex stories that I that I love that I don't always have to you know read them with my eyes I can read them with my ears as well oh she spends a lot of time untying knots in this book and the way it's structured not to sound like a total nerd but you're a literature professor I feel like I'm okay here oh yeah I love structure the the way the book is structured and how she um slowly and deliberately keeps looping back around to the same themes and the same stories I thought was so well done listeners should know that there is a lot of difficult content in this book And while it's sensitively handled, she talks frankly about a lot of terrible things she experienced. And those are present in these pages. And also on audio, she's Australian. I want her to talk to me out loud with her voice. Yeah, so I'm I'm really excited by that as well. She's also a performer, so she can deliver the material. (laughs) Ames, we covered a lot of ground today. At the end of the day, the books we discussed... Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver, which you do need to wait until October for this one, I am sorry to say. The good news is you can plan accordingly. Either or, and we also talked about The Idiot by Elif Bachman, and then Ten Steps to Nanette, a memoir situation by Hannah Gatsby. Now, of those books, what do you think you may read next? I'm definitely going to listen to Ten Steps to Nanette, probably within hours because I <laughs> because because I can. But the one I'm most excited about, and I love all three suggestions, but I'm really excited about Demon Copperhead's Barbara Kingsolver because it's been a long time since I've read Barbara Kingsolver and it's a really long time since I've been really excited by the idea of a new novel of hers as well. Because I think it sounds quite different to what she's been writing, but it sounds like a really 
exciting, interesting turn. Well, I want to hear all about it. Ames, thank you so much for taking time to talk books with me today. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. And thank you so much for kind of helping to unpick some knots in my head as well around my reading life. <laughs> <laughs> well played. The pleasure was mine. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Ames, and I'd love to hear what you think they should read next. Our show notes include the full list of titles we talked about, plus Ames's social media links. Those are at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 348. As podcasters, reviews are totally our love language. Leave our show a review on Apple Podcasts or give a star to your favorite episode on my favorite app, that's Overcast. Help us spread the bookish love. Even telling a friend, hey, do you listen to this great book podcast? That helps so much. Thank you. Follow along with us over on Instagram, where you'll find me at Ann Vogel. That's Ann with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Our show's page is at What Should I Read Next? Getting our weekly email in your inbox helps you stay up to date on all things happening here. And I share good bookish stuff I love every week. Sign up at What Should I Read Next? Podcast.com slash newsletter. We'll make sure you're on the list. Make sure you're following in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts. We are taking a break next week, but we'll be back at the beginning of October with another wonderful readerly conversation. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with production assistance by Holly Wikachevsky and sound design by Kellen Pekachek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, Ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>